You know, I want us to always remember and to consider especially as you think on, think back on the service or think forward in the service of the great blessing it is to have God's word, to have his, his teachings and his promises, the revelation of himself given to us. This is the way we know God. This is the way we really know ourselves and we know his plan and his salvation, uh, his son, his spirit, all of that is given to us through the word and so it is such a great blessing that God has given it to us given it to us he's not hidden it from us uh, it is there for us if we will pick it up take up and read uh, as augustine heard let's take up and read take out your bibles this morning and turn to romans chapter 12 Chapter 12, in, in the past few weeks as we've done our readings, we've done some, some long readings in preparation for the sermon. Today, we're going to do a short reading, just two verses this morning from Romans chapter 12, the first two verses appropriately enough. Verses 1 and 2, let's hear God as he speaks to us powerfully even through these two verses. Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Let's pray. Our Father, we do Thank you so much for your word. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to have a, a good and right estimation of, of what a blessing it is to have your breathed out word um, written down in scripture and given to us to, to first convert us and then to instruct us, to cause us to grow in our understanding, to grow in, our, in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior. We thank you for this word we've read this morning, and as we now have time to look into it a bit deeper, we pray for your blessing upon he who speaks and we who hear. And we pray that it would all be to your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Keep your Bibles out as we'll be looking at these two verses. As we come to verse or chapter 12 this morning, we cross the major threshold, the major dividing line in Paul's letter to the Romans as we move from chapter 11 to chapter 12. It's sort of the continental divide of the book of Romans. You know, Paul has been writing to the church, and we've been uh, over the last, I think it's 45 messages or so, looking at what Paul has been writing about two great foundational truths. First is our sin. We learned about that starting way back at the beginning in chapter 1 through the middle of chapter 3. We learned about that as Paul taught about our, our sin and our guilt before God. We've also learned then from that point to where we are today about God's grace that is shown to sinners such as us. Sinners both Jewish and Gentile as we've seen. God's grace shown to sinners by justifying them. By reckoning them 
Not because of anything they've done, not because of anything they've contributed, but, but reckoning them righteous in his sight, grounded in the redemptive work of Jesus Christ, and received through faith in Christ and faith alone. And now Paul comes to chapter 12 and a a change of topic of uh, somewhat. And Paul, in doing so here, is following a pattern that's typical of him. He doesn't do it in all of his letters, but in much of his writing, he begins his letters to these various churches and various people by, by grounding his teaching and his readers in doctrine speaking about what God has done through Christ and of the position of of believers uh, that they are now in, those to whom he is writing. Um, Sometimes this first part of Paul's epistles is referred to uh, as the indicative part of his letters because it speaks of, it, it indicates what is true of God and true of us through Christ. And then having given that foundation, the second half of Paul's letters very often are the more practical part, the part of of command, the part of the imperatives. It's sometimes called the imperative section. section. It's the call to action. It's now that you've heard all of this, here's how you should respond to it. It's the application of the doctrine that Paul gave in the first first half. And it's not a hard and fast division. We've seen already in the first 11 chapters of Romans much exhortation, a lot of commands on how we are to live and how we are not to live. And as we move into this more practical half of the book of Romans, we will continue to see lots of theology. So it's not that hard, fast, but in, in major, the majority, uh, the, in the general scope of this, We have in chapters 1 through 11 the doctrinal part and in chapters 12 through 16 the more practical aspect. And Paul always does it in that order. Doctrine first, practice second. His commands to Christian living are always grounded in doctrine, in biblical doctrine. We are to live in certain ways because we have been brought to Christ, we have been bought by Christ, we have been justified by faith, adopted by God, and dwelt by the Holy Spirit. And it's always in that order, because doctrine always produces a reaction. The fact that God saves us through His doing, that's doctrine, always leads us to to live in appropriate ways as those who have been saved by the grace of God. And so here in the book of Romans, we have 11 chapters of the most lofty doctrine expressed anywhere in the New Testament, explaining the the righteousness of God being given, being reckoned to sinful men and women by an act of God's free grace, an act that unites us to Christ, that gives us peace with God, that frees us from condemnation and wrath, that gives us the spirit of adoption and gifts us with a great inheritance and places us in a right standing with God from which nothing in heaven or on earth can separate us. 
And it is that salvation, it is that doctrine, it is that truth which leads us to live a life that, as we'll see, every day and in every way expresses our thankfulness to God for His love and grace. And that is the topic of the rest of the book of Romans. How we are to live. How do we, how do you now respond to what God has done for you so magnificently, so graciously, so mercifully, so wonderfully, so freely? And Paul begins to answer this question this morning as we come to these first two verses of chapter 12. And this is sort of a, a general statement, a beginning, uh, a hook to hang the rest of the, the epistle on. And we are going to look here as Paul begins this second half of the book by giving an appeal to us as God's people. And his appeal Paul will give to us, or of that appeal, Paul will give us the basis of it. He'll give us the content of it. He'll give us the details of it. In a negative command, in a positive command, he'll give us the means, he'll give us the purpose. All of this in the first two verses of this epistle. Paul's appeal, and we want to begin by looking at the basis of this appeal. His appeal is in verse 1. It's stated there as an appeal. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. He says, I appeal to you, brothers. The word in the original that's translated here, appeal, has a very broad range of meaning, and it comes down somewhere between a request and a command. And it's interesting that, that though every exhortation in the New Testament, from any New Testament writer, comes with the force of God himself and with the force of the Word of God, Paul's practice as not just an apostle but a pastor, as every pastor's practice should be, Paul's practice is to be winsome in his instruction not overbearing, not hard. And so it's been said that Moses commands, Paul exhorts. And so Paul here appeals to us. He appeals to his readers. Very often you'll also hear him use we. We this, and we need to do that instead of just you. Although it's important to understand that we includes you. And notice here that he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. See, there's part of that warmth of Paul. Even as he gets ready to give us a whole bunch of commands, he says, I appeal to you, brothers, which includes, by the way, women as well as men. In fact, some of our English translations will translate uh, the word brothers as brothers and sisters so that you ladies know that you're included in this as well. Every Christian is included in this. And before he even gets to the appeal, before he gives the appeal, he gives, he gives a reason for it. He grounds it in a basis. He says, I, pe- I appeal to you, therefore. Which bases th- this appeal and the whole second half of the epistle, bases it 
on the first half of the epistle that I mentioned earlier. And further and more explicitly, he bases it, he says, look there, on the mercies of God. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God or in view of the mercies of God, because of the mercy of God, because of what God has done. And this word, too, mercies, is an apt summary of of God's actions towards sinners that we've seen in chapters 3 through 11. It is his concern over our condition as sinners and his determination not to treat us as our sins deserve. That's what we should see here, that the basis of Paul's appeal is the mercies of God, the manifold mercies of God that the, the writer of Lamentation says are new every morning. The grace of God, the love of God, the pity of God, the compassion of God on us. Paul is saying here that what God has done for you is the basis of what you should now do for God. Not the other way around. Not that what we do for God is the basis of what God does for us. It's never that. It's always the other way around. God's grace, God's mercy is the basis for the appeal that Paul will make to us. And here is where we move then from what God has done to what we are called to do in response. In response. Not not in an attempt to earn what God has given or will give. Not to seek to leverage God's mercy, which cannot be done. Remember what Paul said back in Romans 9 and verse 15. He quoted God who said, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So that is not the reason that we are to do these things. The reason is, to use a good reformed term, is to note that Paul's appeal is going to be grounded in gratitude. And that fills out the outline of the book of Roman that talks about our guilt and talks about God's grace and now talks about our gratitude toward God. In thankfulness for what God has done. In consideration of the mercies He has shown and continues to show. Mercies, again, as I said, that are new every morning that continue to be poured out upon us. That's the basis for Paul's appeal. And then we come next to the appeal itself, or the content of the appeal. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. You know that much of the Old Testament's um, Cultists, the, the, the worship of God was built around the, the notion and the, the practice, the activity of the sacrifices of God's people. You cannot read your Old Testament without coming across the sacrifices that God had instituted. Sacrifices brought by people to the tabernacle, to the temple, sacrifices of animals 
and grain, and, and grain cooked with oil and honey, different types of, of sacrifices. And according to the detailed instructions that we find in the opening chapters of the book of Leviticus, there were several types of offerings of sacrifices that were given to God's people to be performed. There were sin offerings. There were guilt offerings. There were meal offerings, grain offerings. There were peace offerings. Offerings that were made daily and weekly and monthly. There were sacrifices that were to be done on specific occasions, a specific feast, uh, in, in specific times when specific things happened. And of course, there was the annual sacrifice on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. There were various purposes, various procedures for all of these sacrifices, all of these offerings. Again, very detailed, God gives them to show that he is very specific about how he will be worshipped. But all of these, we know, were purposed to point away from themselves into something else. They were purposed to point forward to the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. We speak of them as being types and shadows of the reality that came in Christ as he fulfilled what the Old Testament sacrifices and offerings pointed to. And one of the great truths of the Old Testament or of the New Testament is that with the coming of Christ and and with the completion of his redemptive work, that the shadows of the, the Old Testament sacrificial system have all been fulfilled in Christ, and that therefore the Old Testament sacrificial system has been done away with. Jesus is our perfect and sufficient sacrifice for sin and for guilt, and he is the source of our fellowship with God. He has paid for the sins of his people. But with all of that said, the fact is that though the Old Testament sacrificial system is done away with, forever, fulfilled by Christ, that there is also now a New Testament sacrificial system. Not as a means to provide atonement, not as a means to obtain forgiveness. I mean, even even the Old Testament sacrifices couldn't do that on their own, could they? Hebrews 10.4 says that the blood of bulls and goats can never take away sin. But the forgiveness of sins in the Old Testament was grounded in the work of Christ. But this New Testament sacrificial system also cannot lead to forgiveness of sins. It doesn't need to. Christ has brought forgiveness of sins. The New Testament sacrifices are rather sacrifices that are made by us, not in order that we can receive forgiveness, but because we have received forgiveness. Because of the works of Christ on the cross. Here is the sacrifice that Paul is appealing to us to make. See it there again in verse 1. It is to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Here is the New Testament system of sacrifices. It's the sacrifice that we make. 
and Paul brings in, in, in just a few words here of, of verse 1, a lot of sacrificial language to sort of emphasize this. Something which would not have been lost on the original readers. They had likely seen animals being brought to the temple in Jerusalem and the sacrifice taken in the worshiper's place. Remember that though the Christians didn't do these sacrifices anymore, the Jews still practiced the sacrifices at this time. And Christians, especially Jewish Christians, would have had a very robust understanding. And the words that Paul uses here in in verse 1 would have immediately struck them and reminded them of the, the facts and the acts of the Old Testament sacrifices. Much more, of course, than, than we do who would recoil at the thought of an animal sacrifice. And Paul brings all of that to their attention and pours this new meaning into this terminology as he speaks and writes here in, in verses 1 and 2. He says to them, present yourself. That itself is a sacrificial word, present. As Old Testament worshipers were told to come and present their offering at the gate of the temple. But even more shocking is the sacrifice that is to be brought. Not a goat, not a lamb. Paul says, present your bodies as a sacrifice. We are called, brothers and sisters, to present our bodies as a sacrifice to God. To present, he says, our bodies. Again, that is a reminder of the physical activity of the Old Testament, that they brought animals. But here the meaning is more than just one of flesh. Paul is saying here that we are to present ourselves to God, our whole selves, the whole man, the whole woman, God doesn't ask for bulls and goats, but he asks, he demands for us to bring and to present ourselves. Now, we shouldn't discount the whole idea of the physicality of our bodies from this. It's sort of, it's Paul speaking in the same sense as he mentioned earlier in the book of Romans back in chapter 6. There, Paul, remember, was talking, actually talking about something similar to what he's talking about here, about how we are to live as those who have received the mercy of God. Remember back in chapter 6, he asked a question. He says, are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? And of course, he said that's an absurd thought. But down in verse 12, as he talks about that, He says this, he says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passion. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Remember there that when he spoke about your members, he's talking about giving your bodies over to be instruments uh, expressive of either unrighteousness or righteousness. In 1 Corinthians 6.20, he said, You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body, in the way you act. Our bodies are the way that we express, or the medium, we might say, of the way we express the sin that begins in our hearts. 
And in the same way, Paul is saying here that we are to give our bodies over as a living sacrifice. As a means of expressing what is worked out by the Spirit in our hearts. We are to present ourselves to God, our whole selves to God. And then Paul goes on and gives three descriptions of this sacrifice that we are to offer. This sacrifice of ourselves to God, based, remember, on the fact that God has shown mercy to us. And first, Paul says, the first description is that Paul says that this is to be a living sacrifice. In the Old Testament sacrificial system, the offering of a sacrifice was a bloody affair that ended with the death of the sacrifice. And then the burning of that sacrifice. The destruction of that sacrifice. But Paul says to you, Christian, that that you are called to present yourself as a living sacrifice. A sacrifice that goes on living. That goes on offering itself. Our sacrifice of ourselves to God is not like the Old Testament. Our sacrifice of ourselves to God is not like in other religions. It's not like the the Islamists where the greatest most effective sacrifice or offering is one of giving up their physical life for their God, for their cause, which in some of these countries, as we see, is why it is so easy for them to find people who are willing to strap a bomb to themselves and blow themselves up. They see it as a great offering to Allah. But we are called not to martyrdom, unless God specifically places us in that position. But we are not called to martyrdom, but to devotion, to dedication to God. By offering ourselves as living sacrifices, we are told that our sacrifice is to be ongoing. It is to be perpetual. It's not just a couple of hours on Sunday morning as we sit here. But it is every aspect of our lives. We are to do everything we do as an act of worship to God. And the second thing, Christian, is that your offering of yourself to God is to be, Paul says, holy and acceptable to God. Holy was a very common description associated with Old Testament offerings. And the idea here is that our offering of ourselves to God is to be a consecrated offering. Remember, holy means consecrated. Holy means to be set apart from normal use and dedicated to the service of God. That's what our offering of ourself is to be. Now, the word holy also has a, a qualitative sense, which is actually what we usually think of when we say or hear the word holy. That which is holy, which is, is pure and good, immaculate, morally perfect. And our sacrifice, which we offer up out of gratitude to God for the mercies that He has shown to us, the sacrifice which is our lives every day and in every way, is to be a morally immaculate sacrifice. Without blemish was the way you'll read it in the Old Testament regarding the sacrifices. And you'll read it a lot. The animals brought were to be without blemish. And our offering of ourselves to God, beloved, is to be without blemish. Free from the 
the types of, of defects that would cause an offering to be rejected. What is that? Well, it's bringing an offering of ourselves that's half-hearted, that's insincere, that's hypocritical, that's unbiblical, or that is self-aggrandizing, self-serving. Jesus, in fact, gave a description of such blemished, self-serving sacrifices back in the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, if you want to turn back there, Matthew chapter 6, you can. I'm just going to read a few verses from there. Jesus is is going through and and preaching, remember, to the the crowd there. And in verse 1 and 2 of chapter 6, he says, Beware of practicing your righteousness... We could read that giving of your offering of yourself before other people in order to be seen by them for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus when you give to the needy sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you they have received their reward in the praise that they may or may not get from the people who see them that they are hoping will see them. That's the extent of their of their reward. Again, down in verse 5, he says, When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. He goes on and says, When you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. And then down in verse 16, he says, And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. Self-serving, sacrificial service is not sacrificial service to God. It's only service to ourselves. The third description that Paul gives is, is really an outworking of the other two. You know, rather than, than give poor service to God. He says, let us endeavor to present a holy sacrifice of our lives to God that is holy and therefore acceptable. When he says holy and acceptable, it's got the sense of holy and therefore acceptable to God. Holy sacrifices are acceptable to God. That's the sacrifice of ourselves. Remember again, not, these aren't redemptive sacrifices. Christ alone And Christ sufficiently gave the acceptable sacrifice for our sins. So these sacrifices that Paul's talking about are not that we might be saved. They are because we have been saved. If you get that wrong, this all becomes moralism. And it's not. It's gratitude. It's service to God for what he has done. Thankful service. Gratitude. Tudinal service. Is that a word? Maybe I just made that word up. But then at the end of the verse, Paul puts one additional nail into his appeal by reminding us 
that this is without an argument, without being able to be argued against. This is the proper action of those who have received so great a salvation. He says we are to offer up this kind of sacrifice of thanksgiving to God, which, he says, is your spiritual worship. As God's creatures, beloved, we are made to worship. As born-again, redeemed saints, we are enabled to worship. To worship means, it's an important word, of course, it appears 394 times in the New Testament. It means the reverential or awed response of creation to the all-encompassing magnificence of God. For us, it is our response to the mercies of God that have been shown to us, worship. In the Old Testament, those who offered up sacrifices of worship were the priests. But now, through Christ, Peter tells us that we are priests. We are a royal priesthood. We are priests now, and we offer up the sacrifice of a whole life, our whole life, devoted to God in response to what He has done for us when He poured out His mercy on us and sent His Son as our great high priest to offer up the the one-time, all-sufficient, and only redemptive sacrifice of Himself on the cross. And now we, as that royal priesthood, you, as a member of that royal priesthood, are to offer up a sacrifice of thanksgiving of yourself. Not redemptive, not salvific, but in, and here's that word again, gratitude. Lives of thankfulness, service of thankfulness. That's what we are to offer to God. Holy sacrifice, living, ongoing sacrifice, based on the life that has been placed in us, the eternal life that we have received. Worship also entails the idea of service. In fact, that's a large aspect of it. Our worship is service, and our service is worship. Sometimes, in fact, the word that's translated here, worship, is translated as service. At the beginning of of the book of Romans, Paul says in verse 9 of chapter 1, he says, God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son. Same word in the original that's translated here, worship, translated there, service. In fact, if if you read from a New American Standard Bible, you'll find that this Greek word in more than half of the occurrences translates it as service. Our service is worship, and our worship is service. And what Paul emphasizes about this presenting of ourselves as a living, holy, acceptable sacrifice of thanksgiving to God is that it is, the ESV says, spiritual. Now, the Greek word that is underneath that word is a very interesting word. It's only used twice in the New Testament. It also has a very broad range of meaning, meaning, but it has the idea of of what is reasonable. The word is where we get the word logical. And that's a good translation, actually. It is logical. It's intelligent. It pertains to that which is genuine, true, real, rational, carefully thought through. And so when we put these two words together, 
it results in a, in a different way, uh, different translations of those two words works itself out in the fact that in almost any English translation, you get a different translation of those words. And probably the best, I think, that gives the clearest idea of what Paul's getting across here actually comes, you won't hear me say this very often, comes from the NIV, which says, this is your true and proper worship. So presenting your bodies based on the mercies of God as a living sacrifice, as a holy sacrifice, as an acceptable sacrifice to God, that is your true and proper service of worship. Christian, when we consider what God has done for us in showing us his mercy through sending his son to remove our guilt and our condemnation and to bring us to himself, our true and proper response must be one of gratitude, shown by presenting our whole selves to God and serving him at all times in all ways, in immaculate service, which is pleasing to him. Now when we come to verse 2 then, Paul begins to lay out the, the details of this. The details of this worship and of this service. I should say he begins to, to lay it out, since the rest of chapters 12 through 15 are going to be him laying out this proper, true worship and service. And it, we will see, consists in this, in developing a Christian mindset, a Christian worldview through the study of God's Word. In verse 2, he puts it before us with a negative command, a positive command, the means to do it, and the purpose of doing it. He begins in verse 2 with the negative command, something we are told not to do. Do not, he says, be conformed to this world. Here's the beginning of how you render appropriate gratitudinal service to God by not being conformed to this world. Remember, we, beloved, according to 2 Corinthians 5.17, are new creations in Christ, new creatures. We have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of God's Son, Colossians 1.13 says. We have, as we read this morning, put off the old man. Colossians 3.9 also says that. We are being transformed daily into the image of Christ, 2 Corinthians 3.17 says. That is the work of the Holy Spirit in us. That is the goal of our election. Remember in Romans 8.29, Paul says that we have been predestined to be what? Conformed to the image of his son. Not to be conformed to the world. But even though those things are true of us, we still don't, we possess minds that are fallen. In bodies that are fallen. We are free from the power and the penalty of sin but not yet from the presence of sin. Something we all know too well. I didn't hear an amen, but I know you agree with that. 
And as such, one of the greatest dangers that we face as Christians in our daily lives is to allow ourselves to be conformed to the world. Because the pressure to conform to the world is everywhere. Anywhere you look, anything you read, anything you watch, anything you log into. And it's not just out there, but the pressure to conform to the world is also still in here. The sin that remains in us is a pressure to that. And the pressure is to conform to the world, to become like the world, to begin to take our cues from what the world values, according to its values, to accede to its wishes, to see the world through world-colored glasses, to love what the world loves, in fact, to love the world, to fall in, to join in with with the God-denying system and the thought patterns and the values of those who belong to the world, despite the fact that we're told in 1 John 2.15 to not love the world, neither the things of the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eye and the pride of life. Those things don't come from God. They're from the world and we are not to love them. To be conformed to the world is to love the world. It is to love sin. But now we, Christian, have died to sin. And as Paul said again back in Romans 6, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Answer, we can't. But our problem is that we are still able to and often do fail to live like what we are. Citizens of God's kingdom, members of the church, the body of Christ. But instead, we allow ourselves to be conformed, to be made like, to grow into, to submit to, and even to love the things of the world. Isn't that the struggle of the Christian life? to struggle with this command from Paul, from God, in Romans 12, too, do not be conformed to this world. We are to resist it with every tool that the Lord gives us, and we'll see what that tool is in just a moment. Now, that doesn't mean that we hide away from the world, that we shut ourselves off, that we we cloister ourselves away somewhere. But... You know, we are to be in the world, but not of the world. In the world, but not like the world. That's the exhortation Paul gives us here. That's the negative command. The way by which we are to present ourselves holy and holy to God. And how do we do that? Well, that's the positive command, and it's next. Here it comes. But be transformed by the renewal of your mind. In contrast to being conformed to the world, we are to be transformed. And this is a perfect word. Transformed. The word in the Greek is metamorpho. It's the word from which we get the word metamorphosis. It's used 
twice elsewhere in Scripture. Once in the transfiguration of Jesus. It says Jesus was transfigured. Literally, it says he was metamorphed. Or metamorphosed is the right way I looked that up. See, I don't make up all my words. Some I look up. Now, if you've been through elementary school science, what comes to mind when you hear the word metamorphosis? Probably butterflies. Or caterpillars turning into butterflies, to be precise. Because that's what takes place in the chrysalis, is a metamorphosis, the changing of a form. And it's a perfect word because of, of... not just because of the radical nature of the transformation as we see it, as we view it, but because of the difficulty of the process. We often think that once the caterpillar encases itself in its chrysalis, its cocoon, that it just kind of rests, and then a week, three weeks later, it pops out as a butterfly. But during that time, resting is not the best word to describe what goes on. I'll avoid the more graphic elements of this marvelous process, but basically the caterpillar is destroyed by its own digestive juices and recreated at a cellular level. A wonderful demonstration of the the wisdom and the power of God. But that's what makes it really such an appropriate word for Paul to use. See, the end is beautiful, but the process is hard and messy. And that's the same with us, being conformed or being transformed by the renewal of our mind. Of course, Paul didn't know all about butterfly biology, but he knew about Christian sanctification. He knew that what we need is to be transformed, to be metamorphosed. To be broken down and recreated in the image of Christ. And that's exactly what God does. And he calls us to labor in that process of our sanctification. That's what we're talking about. So having given us then that first the negative command and the positive command, now he gives us the means. And he gives us here a single means by which we are to be morphed from worldlings to those who give true, reasonable, holy, acceptable worship and service to God in every aspect of our lives. It is, Paul says, by the renewal of your mind. Now that implies, of course, that our minds are in need of being renewed and we can recognize that without argument. The effects of the fall on our mind what we call the noetic effects of sin, are manifold. Uh, Dr. Albert Moeller has identified 14 effects of the fall on our thinking, including things like distractedness. You ever get distracted in your thinking? Forgetfulness. Did I already say that one? Inconsistency. The failure to draw right conclusions, the failure to reason correctly, etc. And all of those things point to the need for our minds to be renewed daily and continually. And there is a connection, of course, between our mind and our heart. And it is very important and it is very telling that Paul identifies our need not at the point 
of our heart, not at the point of our emotions or our empathy or our feelings, but he starts with our mind. He says your renewal starts with your mind. We aren't to focus first and foremost on our emotional well-being, but on our capacity to reason, to think as Christians. We can and we must be transformed by that being renewed first, because that's where it starts. Now, make no mistake, it does not end there. Every part of our psyche, of our mental makeup, needs to be sanctified because all of it is fallen, but it begins, Paul says, in the mind. We have to change the way we think. And if and, and to the degree that our mind is properly renewed and brought into proper function, our other capacities will likewise come into line. But it starts here. The error of so many places, so many churches, so many systems that they seek to bypass the mind and get right to the emotions and they, they appeal to that and seek to work there. Paul says it's not the way to be renewed. It's not the way to be transformed. But it's through the renewal of our minds. And finally, Paul gives us the purpose for this. And the purpose he gives there is so that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. See, that's the goal. To discern the will of God, to know the will of God. That phrase there, by testing you may discern, that translates one word in the original. A word that means to, to make a critical examination of something in order to approve it, to judge as good the thing that you're examining. And what does it mean to discern? Well, it means to distinguish. It means and I'll use a very politically incorrect term here, it means to discriminate in a good way. Discriminate is a, is a neutral term, right? We all discriminate, which means to make distinctions. We do it every moment of the day. I made this gesture. I discriminated whether to do that or to just stand here. We do it all the time, hot and cold. Safe or unsafe, funny or sad, worldly or godly, right and wrong. We discriminate. That is what it means to discern. And what we are to discern, what we are to approve, Paul says, is the will of God. Not that we set ourselves up as, as judge over God's will to then determine whether it is good or not. God's will is always good. But we are to have our minds transformed so that we see and recognize and understand and agree with God's will with a view, of course, to putting it into practice. We, Paul is saying, are to have our lives totally transformed into a God-pleasing butterfly by having our minds trained to look for and to obey the will of God, which Paul rightly identifies here right at the end of the verse as good and acceptable and perfect. Three ways to describe the will of God, not three types of, of God's will. I remember hearing that years ago in a sermon. 
One will, and it is good, and it is perfect, it is acceptable. And our goal as Christians is, by discernment, to learn to be thinking God's thoughts after him. To know God's will and to do God's will. And how do we do that? How do we discern what is God's will? And how do we renew our mind? Certainly not by looking inward to ourselves, but we do it by looking to the only place where it is found. We are to, through study of, meditation on, and instruction in God's word, to be constantly developing a Christian mindset, a Christian worldview, a biblical grid through which we view and evaluate everything, everything. And this has to come through the word of God. We, in one sense, have had our minds renewed through the work of the Spirit, and He continues that work throughout our lives. And we are to continue that. We are to work on that. Christian, if you want to do the will of God, and you do if you're a Christian, you have to know the will of God. And the only, excuse me, did I say only? I mean, the absolutely only way to know the will of God is to know what? The Word of God. There is no substitute. There are no shortcuts. And that is how our minds will be renewed. And a renewed mind, Paul says, is how we will be transformed. And a transformed mind and life is what we are to present to God every day and in every way. A sacrifice that is living, that is holy, that is acceptable to him who has poured out such mercies upon us through his Son. And to do that is our true and proper, our logical and rational and appropriate worshipful service. And Paul is going to take now the rest of Romans to work that out. For us this morning, let us seek to see this be true in our lives to the glory of God, that we would present ourselves constantly, every day and in every way, to God because of the great mercies that he has shown to us. And to that we say, amen. Father, we thank you for for your work in us. We thank you for the work that your spirit has begun in us and which your word says he will be faithful to complete. We thank you for your will that you have given to us through your word. And I pray, Father, this morning that as we've heard these things and thought through these things and continue to think through these things that that we would see this as as our primary focus that we would see it as our appropriate worship to you to present ourselves daily to you completely because of what you have done for us i pray that you would bless us and i pray that you would help us in that that effort lord And may it be to your glory. In Jesus' name.
Amen.